Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for uh, being with me today. I hope you're having a good day. It's awfully nice to uh, have this time together. I don't know if you're listening right now in your car. Maybe you're getting ready uh, at home for something. Maybe you're working on something. I, I talked to a lot of people that, that they work at home, which is nice. And they said, I can have the radio on in the background for most of the day, which is what a, what a nice way to work. And I, sometimes people podcast and they, they take and listen to the show at the gym, or if they listen to the replay at night at 11 o'clock. So it's always nice to know what time you're listening, but uh, we're going to have a great hour. I uh, love this passage out of Proverbs chapter 19. It says, listen to advice and accept discipline, and at the end, you will be counted among the wise. Many are the plans in a person's heart, but it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. And my guest, uh, Mary Cassian, has uh, her website is Women Gone Wise. Women Gone Wise. And I uh, read an article in the Gospel Coalition that she wrote, and I just thought it was great. So we called her and said, hey, Mary, you want to do the show? She said, yes. So let's take 60 seconds and bring her on. Worshiping the Risen King together. Faith Radio. We're connecting faith and life together. It helps me stay positive and keep a positive outlook on life. It brings up my spirit and um, really gives me more knowledge on the Bible. Learning how to apply God's Word to everyday life and how to take hold of everything Christ died to give us and make it real and alive in my life. Faith Radio. Oh, it's just like me to make mistakes. I've already got her website wrong. <laughs> oh, please forgive me. Mary is an author and speaker and um, professor of women's studies at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. She's authored several books and Bible studies and videos, including Girls Gone Wise. So, Mary, welcome to the show. Thanks. Good to be with you. Yeah. You forgive me already? I've already messed up. I've already messed up. That's okay. I mess up all the time. Oh, you're so gracious. And thanks for doing the show. I'd I'd love to just hear a little bit about your story because I got lots of questions for you. Okay. Um, my story, I mean, I've been working with women for many, many years, so I'm actually a Canadian. I live up in Canada, so I totally get your part of the world. And, uh, uh, we, uh, we've lived up here the whole time and I just travel down to Southern from time to time to do, uh, cluster courses and teach, uh, theology down there. Mm-hmm. 
And the temperature today, where you are? Uh, Mid-60s, maybe. Oh, that's not, not too bad. bad. That's not bad. Not it's, bad. Yeah. So we're kind of the same. And what hockey team do you support? Well, the Edmonton Oilers okay. is is our local hockey team. But let me tell you, I used to cheer for the uh, Minnesota Wild because my because my son played for the Minnesota Wild. What? Who's your yeah. son? Uh, Matt. Matt Cassian. So wow. Uh, yeah, several years ago, and uh, so I was in Minnesota often, and and you know with the jersey on and cheering. Oh, you're so, awesome. You're awesome. Yeah. I did yeah. not connect those dots. Now I'm even more excited to talk to you. There you go. Yeah. You can ask you can ask me hockey questions too. <laughs> Believe me, I will. We could digress right away and just talk hockey the whole time. <laughs> That's exciting. All right. Um I was on desiringgod.org, which I go often, and you were uh, yeah. wrote this brilliant article on women teaching men and how far is too far. And uh, it was a really good article, and I thought, "Huh. What if you'd come on and talk about that because you talk about how important it is for uh, the the church head to be men and to be obedient to the calling that God has ordained, you will often reject opportunities to speak because it's not appropriate in your opinion. Did I say that right? Yeah, yeah. I, I think you encapsulated that. I mean, I think that that uh, we have a lot of issues talking about this ish, this this very question. You know, what can women do in the church? Because I think that everyone understands that women, uh, you know, are equal to men in terms of of just worth and value and uh, being created in the image of God. And women can also be extremely gifted and knowledgeable. They can uh, be highly educated. But but uh, scripture lays out that there are some differences in terms of what men and women ought to be doing in the local body of, of believers. All right. So give me what you would say your biblical understanding of this. OK, well, I mean, I my my spiritual gift is teaching. So I, I'm a teacher. I So I believe that that women can be gifted in teaching. I am. And uh, so when I when I approach you know, what women ought to be doing in the church in terms of um, contributing, I do think that women ought to be using their gifts fully and completely, and that in, includes the gift of teaching. But I also believe that there is a uh, an office of elder, pastor, um, whatever you want to call it in your particular denomination. That is um, an office that is reserved for men. Um, it's for the fathers of the congregation, and and that there is a type of teaching that is, you know, the doctrinal instruction for the body, the the, the headship, oversight of the body. Uh, that that and that is reserved for men. So, um, you know, that's it's not a popular position, but I think it's a I think it's a biblical one. Mm-hmm. And it really is a nice tie-in with your book, The Right Kind of Strong, and Mm. begs the question, so tell me, what does it mean to be a strong woman? Well, to be a strong woman means to be a woman who draws her strength from God. I mean, it doesn't matter how strong you are or how weak you are. uh, You can be a strong woman if you draw your strength from the Lord and if you submit yourself 
to his ways. And he, he gives us strength, he gives us power, and he gives us the ability to, to do what he requires of it, us, what he wants us to do. And um, so you can become a strong woman that way. Mm-hmm. Mary, what are some strength sapping habits? Well, the the book, The Right Kind of Strong, is based on 2 Timothy 3, 6, and 7. And that's a passage where Paul is describing some women in Ephesus, and he describes them as being weak. Weak women is what he calls them. And uh, his, his description there, the word weak, actually means diminished. It's, it, it, it's lesser or little, little women, uh, women who are less than what they ought to be. And, and his point isn't that women are weak. His point is that women ought not to be weak. Women ought to be strong and that God wants women in the church to be strong. And so uh, taking a look at this passage in 2 Timothy, where he describes what's going on in Ephesus, there there are several things that we can notice about these women uh, in the church of Ephesus is is they they were allowing things to creep into their households and they were being taken captivated by false ideology. They were burdened by sin. They were led astray by various passions. They were um, always learning, but never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. And as some of you will recognize that verse. But what's so interesting is if you take those that, that passage, those couple of verses, and break them down um, into clauses, you can actually see that these women had some bad habits. And uh, the first bad habit is that they allowed stuff to creep into their homes, into their households. And in in the case in women in the church in Ephesus, that was uh, first and foremost false teachers that Paul was talking about. But I think that that women uh, become weak. We we become weak when we tolerate creeps, when we allow things to creep in, whether it's false ideas or bad attitudes, or when we allow stuff to creep into our homes, you know, through our television sets, through entertainment, uh, whenever we start, you know, letting our morals slip, or whenever we say, you know what, this is just a little compromise, uh, it's not a big deal. You know what? It, that's how sin advances. Sin does not advance by leaps. It advances by creeps, just one tiny compromise at a time. And so I think if we want to be a strong woman, if we want to be a strong woman, um, then what we need to do is we need to be really on guard and alert for all those kinds of creeps because Satan is always trying to creep up on us in many different kinds of ways. And so strong women uh, keep an eye out for that. Mm -hmm. Mary, does busyness contribute to weakness? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. We we can be so busy doing things that are unimportant. Uh, yeah, women are extremely busy, but often it's busyness and it's being distracted by things that are not important and not not crucial and letting letting the things that are really crucial fall by the wayside. Uh, you know, for, you know, stuffing our schedule so full that we we have no time for reflection, no time for reading scripture, no time for just uh, nurturing, developing our relationship with Jesus. Mm-hmm. I'm speaking to Matt Cassian's mom, Mary. Uh, it's awfully fun <laughs> for me to do be doing this. I'm going to take a little break. And when we come back, lots more with Mary Cassian. Be back in a minute.
Mary Cassian is my guest. Awfully glad to be getting to know her. She's got a great blog. She's got a great book. The book is called The Right Kind of Strong. And her website is marycassian.com. K-A-S-S-I-A-N. Marycassian.com. Um, Mary, I'm just going to try to jump around a little bit just because I want to hear your voice on a lot of different topics because your blog sure. is great and I love the way you write and... Um, You've got a son who plays pro hockey, so this is win-win for me. Just so you know, <laughs> that's good. Yeah, that's good. Any anytime you can talk to a hockey mom, right? Oh yeah, it's just I love talking to a hockey mom. Okay, let's talk about uh, talk about envy a little bit. That green-eyed monster. Oh, envy. Yeah, that can. I, I think that's a big issue for women. We tend to uh, fall into the the trap of comparison, and we look at other women. And, and I think it, it's exacerbated by our whole so, social media culture, you know, Facebook, all the sunny profiles, everything good happening, and uh, Instagram, Twitter, and we tend to compare ourselves, and then we have this green-eyed monster, envy, creep up in our lives, and I think that it can really cripple us in terms of crippling our joy and crippling our effectiveness and just uh, really robbing us of the richness of life that God would want us to have. Uh, it, but it's so easy to fall into this, fall, fall into this trap of envy and comparison. And uh, it's easy for women to, to go that direction. So that's another area in which women can really grow strong in a biblical kind of way is to avoid that trap of envy and just learn how to bless others and to, to just understand uh, that that everyone is different and, and just to bless other women uh, and not to enter into this comparison trap. There's really nothing pleasurable, pleasurable about envy. I mean, call it a sin, but even you think about it, gluttony, at least you get to eat a whole cheesecake by yourself. <laughs> you, you know, there's something that's going on there that's pleasurable. And then you realize, boy, I shouldn't have done that. But envy's gotten, there's no payoff. There's nothing there, is there? Well, you just hurt yourself when you envy. I mean, you feel bad. Uh, you, you are, it robs you of being able to enjoy what you do have, the blessings that you do have. And then the comparison, you know, it's self-condemnation and, uh, and then just resentment towards a friend or a sister or relative, whoever. And so, yeah, envy is, has, there is really, I can't think of anything good. I think you're right. I, you know, it's not like eating a chocolate cake. It's, it's, there's just nothing good about envy. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. If you have envy, you can start to, like you say, feel resentment, uh, which is just crazy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Just, uh, just taking a look at what others have, uh, resenting that and falling into the trap of feeling sorry for yourself and uh, resenting the the person for what they have, and then also just just the whole striving and materialism and and uh, measuring ourselves by standards and and not just envying uh, stuff. I mean, I'm also envying things like oh, she's skinnier than I am, or she's prettier than I am, or um, you know, she, her kids are more well behaved than mine, or got a better grade, or you know, are doing better on the hockey team. So and mm -hmm. it's just not, not a good place to be. Yeah, you talked about that in your blog a little bit about uh, female beauty and how it matters. Um, I would mm -hmm. love for you to comment on that. 
Yeah, female beauty. I, I, we tend to, in the Christian world, we tend to focus a lot on uh, what's on the inside. And I think that that is the priority. But I do think that that our external appearance is not unimportant. I think that, that the Lord has created us uh, to... Um, as women to to enjoy beauty and as men to be attracted to beauty and so so we need to handle that responsibly and in a balanced way but i think i think that some women um kind of reject the whole uh external beauty thing and and just let themselves just say that it's totally unimportant and other women will go to the other extreme and be so caught up in their physical appearance, that uh, that it is a distraction and it leads them away from where the Lord would want them to be. So I think that that whole question of of beauty is is uh, is one that we need to treat carefully and with balance. And I think that uh, that the whole even the whole male female relationship, the whole husband wife relationship, is is upheld as a, as an image of um, Christ and the church. And we're told in scripture that the bride wants to make herself beautiful. She wants to keep her dress clean. She wants to um, make herself beautiful for her groom. And so there's a bit of a symbolic aspect there. And I mean, you can't take it too far in terms of of the physical symbolism, but but it's not totally unimportant. I think it's an important question. Um, and, And that's, I think, why women get so caught up in it, because intuitively, we want to be seen as beautiful. And obviously, the beauty shines from the inside out. And that's the most important. Um, but we also need to, uh, you know, need to take our external p- appearance into consideration, at least. Do you think that uh, 100% of people have some insecurity about their body image? Or, you know, at one point, they had an insecurity? Fairly safe to you say know- that? Yeah, I think that's fairly safe to say. I think that most people do, and women do. You know, that you're you're too tall, or you're too short, or you're too wide, or you're too skinny, or your nose is too big, and and it comes back to that comparison comparison um, issue also. But yeah, I I think that uh, that there is that going on in terms of just insecurities, and and I do think that the Lord wants to address that. And just to to know that we are precious and we are accepted and that he has created us and that uh, he has created us. We are wonderfully made. And so for women to to embrace that and to embrace our differences and to embrace even our physical differences. Mary, when you think of the younger generation right now that are growing up uh, with Facebook and Instagram and everything else, I mean, they're their selfie quality has to be like perfect. Otherwise they start to see other selfies that are way better than theirs and pictures. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I think I have like four pictures of me from high school Mm -hmm. and kids today, they on any given day will generate 40 new pictures of themselves. Absolutely. And it's kind of, it's entertaining uh, actually to sit and to watch some of them take selfies. I was at a concert and there was a girl in front of me wanting to take a selfie and she must have taken a good dozen shots, you know, just to get her lips pursed just the right way <laughs> and her hair arranged just the right way. And uh, I was thinking, wow, <laughs> that's just, that's a lot of, uh, a lot of effort, but it just, it just, it just reflects, I think, how 
how insecure we really are and how much we want to present to the world uh, an image that is just just perfect and that we want to present our best side and uh, we're, we're uh, reticent to present anything that is less or, or reticent to, to present our struggles or the things that we're uh, going through in terms of difficulties. So yeah, huge issue. And I mean, I think of my uh, my granddaughters, who are just really young still, but I, I think, okay, how how am I going to help navigate that with them in terms of just uh, having their focus in the right place in terms of just, you know, the, the social media stuff and all the messages that the world wants to send them about what it means to be beautiful and what it means to be strong. Because it's certainly not bad to be telling your beautiful granddaughters how beautiful they are. But you have to be careful not not to have that become their identity, right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I mean, I try and identify, you know, you're so beautiful. Your kindness is so beautiful. You're, you know, uh, you're being so polite and that's so beautiful. So, you know, trying to emphasize other aspects of beauty other than um, not just the physical aspect. Mm -hmm. So what would be, let's just, if we wanted to get on the right track, what would be one little simple habit of a spiritually strong woman? Mm. Well, there are, there are basic habits. I think scripture reading and prayer, fellowshipping with other believers, those are really important habits. But I think that that uh, a really important habit of, one, one of the most important, and I go through seven habits in my book, The Right Kind of Strong, but the one that I actually see as most important is to admit our need. And that, that seems counterintuitive because you think a strong woman ought to be independent and not, not to be needy and to be able to manage things herself, to be competent. But scripture kind of gives us a different picture. It, it, it shows that everyone who relies on God for strength is actually strong. And if you rely on yourself for strength, uh, your strength isn't what it could be. So you are weak if you're relying on yourself. You're strong if you're relying on God. So I think the first thing is to admit your need. And that's not always an easy thing for women because we're raised uh, in this culture to think that that strength means independence. It means aggression. It means knowing my mind and speaking it. Um, it means being competent and capable uh, but the, the the Bible's view of strength is is a little bit different than that. So I think that's probably one of the key habits is challenging our own view of what strength is and turning to the Lord uh, to to get strength from Him, uh, from 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 Him, His power, His strength, but also just His wisdom in terms of knowing how to live. Yeah, Mary, you're just absolutely delightful. Thank you so much for doing the show. Thank you thanks for saying, so much. Yeah, when we reached out to you, thanks for saying yes. Absolutely. It's been really nice to meet you. Mary Cassian has been my guest. Uh, she's written a book called The Right Kind of Strong, Surprisingly Simple Habits of a Spiritually Strong Woman. MaryCassian.com is her website, K-A-S-S-I-A-N. We'll take a short break, and we'll be back with James K.A. Smith in a few minutes.
I am loving this day, loving my job, too. Guess who I get to speak to now? James K.A. Smith. Couldn't be any happier about that. He's written a number of books. I've got a couple in my hands right now. I'm going to have him talk about both of them. One is called You Are What You Love, The Spiritual Power of Habit. And his new book is called On the Road with St. Augustine, A Real World a real world Spirituality for Restless Hearts. James, welcome. Hey, great to talk to you again, Bill. No, this is awesome for me. I, I just think you're fascinating, smart, funny. You kind of do it all. I love that. Well, thanks. I appreciate it. It's great to chat. <laughs> yeah. So let's talk about You Are What You Love and The Power of Habit. This is a fascinating topic. Yeah. It's a great book. I also want to get to the St. Augustine book. So let's just start off with a little refresher course on this book. Yeah. Um, you Are What You Love is really inviting people to reconsider what spiritual growth looks like, I guess, would be one way of putting it. I think... Um, in many ways, we assume that discipleship, sanctification is sort of increasing what I know mm-hmm. and changing what I think, whereas uh, I think all of us have the experience of knowing exactly who we ought to be and what we ought to do and what we ought to love and not doing that. And and so my argument is what we need is an account of our spiritual life that takes power, takes seriously the power of habit, the significance of habit, that, that we are shaped and we live out what we love, but our loves are learned and acquired from the rhythms and routines and rituals that we give ourselves over to, if that makes sense. It makes total sense, and I think it's a principle that doesn't get discussed enough because I think it's so powerful. Yeah, it's... Um, and the insight, I think maybe the uncomfortable insight that comes from this is if my if I am what I love, right? Like if 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 the center of my identity is what scripture calls the heart, because what I love is what shapes me and what moves me. And yet if my loves are these habits that are ingrained in me by the rhythms and rituals and routines that I give myself over to, what that means is I might not love what I think, right? That's the really disconcerting situation that I I might believe that I love God. I might believe that I love what God loves. And yet, if I haven't been aware of the extent to which my heart has been apprenticed by rival rituals, by, by disordered uh, 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 rhythms and repertoires, disordered liturgies, I call them, then we might not realize that effectively the habits of our heart have been co-opted by the culture. Hmm. Very wise. In your book, you talk about calibrating the heart and love takes practice. Would you talk about that some more? Yeah. So if you think of think of one of the reasons why I think Scripture constantly talks about the heart as sort of the center of the human person is if, if you imagine the heart is like this compass, we, we live towards what we think north is, right? Mm-hmm. We are the kinds of creatures who are sort of bent in a certain direction. But like every compass, that heart has to be calibrated to true north. And one of the things that happens to us through our immersion in these kinds of rival rituals that constitute our cultural immersion our, our hearts get miscalibrated, and we don't realize it. This happens unconsciously. And so you end up sort of being bent. Your, your compass is off, and you end up pursuing 
some rival, some substitute for God and his kingdom. So what we need to do is sanctification, discipleship, let's put it that way. Discipleship is about recalibrating my heart's desires. And I think that happens in the embodied communal practices of Christian worship. So have, in the same way that my heart habits are deformed by cultural practices, they are reformed when I give myself over to the practices of the body of Christ. James, isn't that kind of in conflict with how we live our lives nowadays? Because we live with such a sense of expediency. We just, everything's got to be done quickly and let's get this done. And uh, I just sent a text and I can't believe you haven't responded to me. It's been five seconds. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, no, that's a good point. I mean, we do live in this uh, hurried culture of haste and distraction. And yet, one of the things, let, let's think about this carefully for a sec. I would say one of the most deformative cultural practices right now probably is carried in our pockets, and it's the rhythms and rituals, the liturgies of social media and our smartphones that actually we repeat over and over and over and over again in such a way that they, that kind of wins our attention and wins our affection. So what we need is countermeasures in our lives. And it does. It, it's going to take the patience of trusting that the Spirit is doing something in me and through me and to me when I give myself to the rhythms of the body of Christ. And it, yeah, there's formation takes time. Deformation takes time, but reformation also takes time. So maybe uh, uh, part of it is learning the patience that's required for that. Mm-hmm. Talk about guarding your heart. Talk about when you uh, have these convictions, how we keep nourishing these convictions and protecting and guarding our heart. Yeah, it's so interesting. Isn't it? This is that, that famous insight from the book of Proverbs. Uh, um, above all else, guard your heart for what you, what, what you do, everything you do flows from that. And so what we have to do is, I think if we start to realize that our loves— are these orienting affections that govern our lives. If we realize that they are being shaped and formed and deformed by maybe things we do that are doing something to us, to become aware of that, to realize that is, I think, to embrace new intentionality about our Christian formation. So I think there has to be, guarding our heart is on the one hand sort of walking into our our everyday lives with eyes wide open and realizing that there are all kinds of things that we do that aren't just benign and neutral they are doing something to us and not not to hide out in fear but to like be aware of that and say hey i see what this is trying to do to me and then be equally intentional i i just don't think there is real growth in the christian life if we are not equally intentional about disciplining our hearts with the rhythms and practices of Christian worship and the spiritual disciplines. So I, I think there's a lot of ancient wisdom that we need to recover as contemporary people about what the adventure of the Christian life looks like. Mm-hmm. James, talk about um, having a, a household that is, that is um, in that, has that good vibe. Yeah, so I, I think it's probably being a parent of four kids. I mean, they're in their 20s now, but... Uh, um, I think it was the scariness of that reality that helped me to realize if I'm going to, if we're going to curate a household that is formative, 
it it can't just be a matter of depositing the right ideas and memory verses in our kids' head. What we need is every household has sort of a hum about it, a vibe, a, 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 an ethos. And we needed to be intentional about what are the rhythms and routines that govern our house. And obviously, I think at the heart of that is saying our tiny household is situated in relationship to the household of God, so that the, that our gathered communal worship with the body of Christ is the hub around which our household revolves. But I also think it's about being intentional and realizing micro practices can have macro significance, you know? So in some ways, I think we shouldn't underestimate, for example, the formative power of the family dinner table, which is just this this little echo of the Lord's table. It's a, a communal fellowship where we pray together, where we listen to one another, maybe where we confess to one another. And to have that formative practice over and over and over again, again, it's not just something that we do, it's doing something to us. And I think it creates capacity in young people for um, spiritual growth. And when you think of the way that families can start to slowly drift apart, and you start to realize we only have two family dinners a week. Yeah. That can be yeah. a problem because it seems, you know, your point is that you've got to get the family nesting together, don't you? Yeah. And and so if, if we can just put a little bit of critical edge on this. Yeah. I, I would say this is one place where you can feel, for example, I talk about these cultural liturgies, right? Like these other cultural rituals that we don't realize are sort of getting hold of us. And I would say, I think a lot of Christians underestimate the formative power of what I call uh, um, the the amateur athletic industrial complex, right? <laughs> In other words, we, we don't appreciate, we think, oh, uh, and I, believe me, I love sports. I, I, I think uh, um, God made us to play. On the other hand, when soccer and football and baseball and field hockey are asking us to orient our lives around them and our households around them, before you know it, really our household is living a different story. Mm -hmm. And so we have to ask ourselves, we just have to be intentional. And every once in a while, it's going to look like resistance to letting the cultural story win over God's story. Uh, beautifully stated. So when you were growing up, uh, Mom made dinner, and you got what he what she served, right? Yeah, yes, yes. And I you mean, sat there until you were done, right? Right. And <laughs> if you didn't eat what you had, you didn't you kind of went to bed hungry, right? Yes, that's right. And yes. now I I see, and I'm not being critical of my friends, but I do see some friends, and you know, four kids come in, and they, it's like mom's treated like a short order cook. I don't want that. I'll have this instead. Right, right, right. And and it, and it really reflects. I think the most potent myth of our culture is the myth of autonomy and independence, like that the world revolves around us. And and we get suckered into thinking households revolve around individuals. Um, and it's it, it's a it's a bad story to get started in. Mm -hmm. But if you're eating together, you can also be then praying together. And if you're praying together, you can also be reading and thinking out loud with each other. Right. Yes, and I I, I share a story in, in You Are What You Love where it also just creates that sort of regular 
rhythm together creates opportunities for then really meaningful moments of like where whereas a family you are lamenting what happened today or you're you know you're longing for kingdom come and you have a chance there there's so many teachable moments and it's not it's not just didactic it's not just oh you're going to memorize this verse tonight it's like it's a teachable moment because we learned what does it look like to have God's heart for the world mm-hmm. and to, to long for what God longs for in the world. And sometimes it, it will look like tears at the table, and yet that will be deeply formative. Yeah. So what was your most dreaded uh, meal growing up? <laughs> <laughs> so my, it's funny. I, I, I have a distinct memory. I won't share all of it because it ended in a really bad way, but I could not stomach cauliflower for some really? reason. And I remember my parents one night, I grew up in, in Canada, and I remember my parents saying, uh, look, you cannot go to hockey practice if you don't finish that cauliflower. And <laughs> so I I stomached it down, but uh, it didn't stay. <laughs> yeah. Nonetheless, I fulfilled my end of the bargain. <laughs> and you got to hockey practice, so all was I good. Got to hockey practice, yes, uh, exactly. All right. Uh, James K. A. Smith is my guest. We're going to take a little break. When we come back, uh, we're going to chat about his new book called On the Road with St. Augustine, A Real World Spirituality for Restless Hearts. We'll be right back. James K.A. Smith is my guest, professor of philosophy at Calvin University. He's written a number of books. The one I'm now holding in my hand is called On the Road with St. Augustine, A Real-World Spirituality for Restless Hearts. Before we get into that, James, I just want to say cream tuna with peas. That was a thing that I just never look forward to. Yeah, yeah. That just was doesn't it on sound... toast? Oh, of course was it was the... on toast. Yeah. Yes, yes. That's course. like the only part of the dinner I could eat was the toast part. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the crosses we have borne. I know. And and we're alive and well to tell yes, the stories. Yes. All right. Thanks, so, Mom. Yeah. Thanks, Mom. <laughs> Thanks, so Mom. Yeah. So, St. Augustine. Love St. Augustine. And for uh, uh, Restless Hearts, is that you? Yeah, in some ways. I mean, I, I, I wasn't... Um, raised in a Christian home and, and came to Christ later. And so I know something of um, the kind of hungry heart that he represented and, and aspirations and then God sort of getting hold of me and turning me in a new direction. Sure. Yeah. I have not had a chance to read your book, so I can't ask intelligent mm-hmm. questions, but I can say if we're sitting next to each other at dinner, having cream tuna with peas, I'd look to you and say, so James, tell me about your new book. Yeah. Cause we're so, certainly not uh, eating. In some ways, it's it's almost a little bit of a sequel to You Are What You Love. You, you Are What You Love really is animated by a key line from St. Augustine's Confessions that many people have heard. You have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. And mm-hmm. that's, you know, that's kind of the, the line that's pasted on my laptop. And um, what intrigues me about Augustine, so for your listeners who might not know, Augustine lives in the late 300s and early 400s. So he's an ancient voice um, in North Africa, what would be contemporary Algeria. Wow. And yet he went, his story is he went on to become one of the great doctors of the church. He's just, you know, he was the patron saint of the Protestant reformers. He is looked to by the entire Western church as, as one of its most significant um, 
intellectual founts, as it were. What what interests me is in his confessions, his classic work, The Confessions, which some people think of as kind of the first memoir of the West. Um, he basically tells a story of looking for love in all the wrong places. As a young man, he, he sort of ran away from his mother's faith and uh, pursued his father's pagan sort of visions of things. And uh, what we realize is he, he looks for, the reason why I think Augustine is so contemporary in a way, or so perennial, is he's that kind of character who really has a hunger for meaning and significance and transcendence, but he keeps trying to satisfy it in things like ambition, achievement, power, sex, uh, um, privilege, prestige, all of those kinds of worldly substitutes, if you will. And they all disappoint him. They all fail because his restless heart is made for someone else. So I, I think he's an interesting character. I sometimes say that Augustine was sort of a Manhattan, Augustine was a Manhattanite 1,500 years before New York existed. <laughs> I mean, there's, he, he's mm-hmm. a character you you could understand, I think. Yeah. Sounds a little bit like the book of Ecclesiastes, doesn't it? Yeah, very much. In fact, vanity, that sort of experience of emptiness, is something that Augustine really wrestles with. So he's, Augustine is, um, he's not just this, you know, big dogmatic scholastic theologian. What what intrigues me about Augustine is he's he's sort of like an existential seeker and explorer and when he finally finds himself in Christ, when when God gets a hold of him, Augustine really sees his story modeled in the story of the prodigal son. Mm-hmm. And he thinks he thinks that's really just a parable of the human condition, that we are all born running away, taking the gifts that have been given to us by the Creator, but we want to do what we want with them, and we spend them down to nothing, and we lose everything, and yet we wake up by the grace of God, and we head home, and the Father is already running out to meet us. He thinks that is the story of grace that every human being can live into. When when that becomes real in Augustine's life, um, he becomes this. Well, he goes on to become a, a pastor, a, a, a priest, and then eventually a bishop. And what's interesting is we have shelves and shelves of Augustine's ancient sermons and letters, cool. and you hear. This is what I call his spiritual realism. You hear this very empathetic, pastoral uh, um, attention to how hard the Christian life is. One of the things I love about Augustine is he's a saint who keeps admitting how difficult it is uh, to follow Jesus sometimes. And so I, I, my hope is that people will find in this ancient voice somebody who, on the one hand, gives us an outside look at our culture— but on the other hand, somebody who seems to like peer right inside our soul and tell us the things about ourselves that we've been sort of too shy or embarrassed or ashamed to admit and to realize that God's grace is on the other side of it. Mm-hmm. I love in your book, you've got detours on the way to myself, wherein we, yeah. Yeah, wherein we embark looking for ourselves, visiting the way stations of a hungry soul wondering where this all might lead and if there might be an end to our striving. Yikes. 
Yeah, so this this metaphor of the road, so it's on the road with St. Augustine. And and some of your listeners might know that famous uh, novel from the middle of the 20th century, simply called On the Road. They might have read it in high school by Jack Kerouac. I, I think that road metaphor, this notion of the journey, the search, the quest, the pilgrimage, that's still a very live metaphor for us. And and Augustine, interestingly, that metaphor of the journey is all over his account of what the Christian life looks like. But he thinks in many ways the temptation is for human beings to try to find home in these pit stops and truck stops and rest stations along the way, rather than ultimately finding their home in the God we are made for. And so that's why, yeah, I explored the, that section of the book is kind of my favorite section because Augustine deals with just very human phenomena like friendship or ambition or mothers and fathers and death. And uh, it's, it's, those are all sort of perennial things that every human being has to run up against. And Augustine says, these are places where I looked for ultimate significance but what happened is, is when I when I tried to expect everything from these things, they could never deliver. And then I became dissatisfied. Whereas once I found my home in God, in a way, all of those things could kind of come back to me as gifts because I wasn't expecting everything from them, if mm -hmm. that makes sense. It makes a lot of sense. You ask such great questions, and I love some of the questions that are popping up in the book. When you do talk about friendship, the question is, what do I want? when I want to belong. Talk yes. about that a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. So, so uh, this is, this is where there's a tie between the first book we discuss, you are what you love. And now on the road with St. Augustine, if we are what we love, if we are what we long for, what we want, then Augustine would say the most fundamental question we can always ask ourselves is what do I want? <laughs> and in particular, what do I want when I want friends? What do I want when I want to belong? And Augustine would say, that's, a, that's an inbuilt human desire. Like God made us as creatures to long for community, to long for friendship, to long to be part of, of a group. But we can also, that can get disordered. It can get sort of crooked. And what happens is we can idolize our friends or we can join communities that are so exclusive that we forget that we are called to love our neighbors. So we're all, we should always be asking ourselves, what do I want when I want to belong? What do I want? Another chapter is on ambition is asks, what do I want when I want to be noticed? Mm -hmm. what, what, do, what am I, what am, and, and the Augustinian point is, what is it that I'm trying to satisfy when I, you know, when I want a thousand likes on Instagram, what, what is that saying about my soul's hungers? And for Augustine, the, the trick, the, the, almost the tightrope of being human is that we need to look to satisfy these hungers, but if we try to satisfy them in created things, we will always be doomed to disappointment because we are made as creatures who will only ever find ultimate satisfaction in the creator. So we can't over-expect from finite things. We can't over-expect, even though these are all good things, right? Friends are good. Ambition can be good. The trick is to not over-expect from those things and turn them into idols. Yeah, does that pit have a bottom? <laughs> it does. I mean, 
interestingly, this is another place where, you know, this is a book that I wrote also with sort of non-Christian seekers in mind, Mm -hmm. because I think, I think the bottom of that pit is, um, a profound experience of disappointment and, and despair. But then the odd word that I think Augustine has for us is sometimes that disappointment and despair is the gateway to opening ourselves up to being dependent on the God who wants us to call on him. So, so in some ways, some folks will have to kind of hit that bottom to get to a place where they're actually willing to come to the end of themselves and open themselves up vulnerably to transcendence, to the divine, to the God, to the father who's there at the end of the road, running out to meet them. Mm-hmm. James, I'm going to pray you come on the show more often. And I, I, I know hey, God, we... I know God will answer my prayers. <laughs> <laughs> it's always a treat. Well, I'll, I'll have to keep writing books. <laughs> no, no. I mean, I want to, I want to go through this book, uh, myself and in let's do it. in its entirety and then i want to call you back and go through it again this is so let's fascinating I, I would i would be i would love to do it because it is it's a book i want people to sort of live with and gestate and yeah if we could muse on it yeah I'm, exactly I'm yeah awesome awesome all right thanks james uh, great j- always good to talk thanks, thank you Bill. so much james k.a smith has been my guest the book we've been chatting about is on the road with saint augustine a real world spirituality for restless hearts. Uh, it's just been a great day. I didn't know I was going to have two Canadians on back-to-back. I had Mary Cassie on. She was from Canada, and so was James. So this has been great. It's been a great show. If you missed any of it, I highly recommend going to MyFaithRadio.com. Go to the Afternoons with Bill show page and uh, hit hit replay and, and listen to the whole podcast if you missed any of it. I will see you tomorrow. Have a great night, everyone. As you lay your head on that pillow... Know that God's working out his great plan in your life, and he loves you. Good night, everyone. I will see you tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.